everybody. Welcome to Season 2 of North Coast Chronicles podcast, Tales from the Great Lakes. I'm your host, Helen Brohl. Please join me every month on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, ASPN, as we share the nature, history, folklore, and charm of the Great Lakes, America's fourth seacoast. Be sure to check out the entire collection of podcasts on ASPN related to our oceans, coasts, and inland seas at CoastalNewsToday.com. If you like North Coast Chronicles, please share it with your friends and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your pods. Today's episode is Silence from Below, Shipwrecks of the Great Lakes. We're so fortunate to have with us Sean Lay. He's the Director of Development for the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum. Thanks for joining us, Sean. Thank you, Helen. And with us, as always, is our trusty engineer and my talented co-producer, Tyler Buckingham. Hey, Tyler, what's going on? Well, hey, Helen. Uh, it's going really great. I'm out in sunny Southern California, uh, doing pretty well. Excellent. Getting any surfing in? Not quite yet, but it's on my it's on my radar. I would like to get in the water and do some surfing. And do something. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, after our surfing the Great Lakes episode, I think... Uh, you got to kind of have it on your mind. And we are going to get you to the Great Lakes to do that. Um, but I'm going to be on the shore watching you. Let me just put it that way. Um, but, you know, Tyler, it's 2022, and we haven't yet talked about it being the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement. Now, this was and is a big deal because it's heralded a new era of binational cooperation and environmental protection for the Great Lakes. And as the Great Lakes region became a manufacturing center for the nation, and the population grew exponentially, the perception that dilution is the solution for pollution applied to the Great Lakes. After all, the Great Lakes are a huge resource, right? And surely they can absorb or move along all of the direct to indirect source pollutants. Now, for someone like me, who remembers fires on the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland and piles of dead smelly fish and algae on the shore of Lake Erie, this mutual agreement by the states and provinces to do something could not have come soon enough. The Bi-National Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement, built on recommendations for action from the International Joint Commission, whose job it is to record such things. Canada and the United States agreed to reduce pollution from industries and communities and to limit the amount of phosphorus entering the lakes, particularly in Lake Erie. New laws reduced concentrations of phosphorus in household detergents, and municipal sewage treatment plants were upgraded and expanded. In an update of the agreement in 1978, the region addressed persistent tox substances and the designation of areas of concern for restoration. The 1987 update of the agreement, management plans were added that worked to eliminate pollutants on a lake-wide basis. The Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement was last amended in 2012 to enhance water quality programs that ensure the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of the Great Lakes. New provisions addressed aquatic invasive species, habitat degradation, and the effects of climate change, and continued work on existing threats to people's health and the environment in the Great Lakes Basin, such as harmful algae, toxic chemicals, and discharges from vessels. Now, for our listeners um, who may have an interest in this area and may remember the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement, I want to highlight a document that might be great to, to go to. It was the 2017 report by the International Joint Commission, the IJC. They called the first triennial assessment of progress, or the TAP, on the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement. And they basically then assessed whether the agreement was working. So this report, the TAP, the IJC noted that there had been a lot of progress to clean up the lakes. But there were significant challenges, included the increase in harmful algal blooms in Lake Erie, the slow pace in addressing chemicals of mutual concern, and the spread of previously introduced invasive species. 
They also noted that governments need to pay additional attention to infrastructure investments that are essential to eliminate the discharge of untreated or insufficiently treated waste into the Great Lakes and reduce risks to human health. Now, Tyler, this all jibes with what we learned from Mark Matson of Swim Fish Drink. That was the organization out of Lake Ontario. And Mark reminded us on our podcast called the Lake of Shining Waters, which is Lake Ontario, that there is still a lot of issues such as stormwater overflows and agricultural nutrients entering the Great Lakes watershed. Um, so I'm thinking, Tyler, I'm, I'd like to think that we can learn from our lessons and clean up our messes, um, but we have to stay vigilant. And, and Tyler, you're engaged in so many of these kinds of discussions every day on ASPN. What's your perception of the state of the Great Lakes? Man, that's a good question. I... I mean, I've got to say, I think that things are improving. And when I was up in Door County, Wisconsin, it was beautiful. So from a from a eye test perspective, I've got to say that the state of the Great Lakes is good. But when I was there, I did talk to a commercial fisherman about specifically climate change. And what he said was interesting to me, because while I wouldn't characterize his uh, position as like denialism, uh, he was of the opinion that many of these issues that you referenced, such as harmful algal blooms and nutrient loading from surrounding agricultural uh, you know, enterprises and, and industrial chemicals, whatnot, uh, kind of have been there all along. I mean, he made the joke that, you know, they called it Green Bay for a reason because there were <laughs> algal blooms in Green Bay. I have no idea if that's true or not. But I do think that you know, one of the interesting challenges that Mark Madsen pointed out is changing the perception of the Great Lakes from being a natural resource that was kind of an industrial thing to being a, a natural resource for living and playing in. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons I like that um, him, his swim fish drink um, initiative, and that's what they call his organization, Swim, Fish, Drink. So if you think of the lakes or where your lake is, that you want to be able to swim in it, you want to be able to fish in it, and you want to be able to drink from it. Now, I mean, basically, you know, that, that kind of visualization for folks who just take it for granted. Um, and the fact that he could, that they were kind of um, uh, getting more people coming to the beaches. And they had a, now a, like an inventory and directory of beaches, something that I just took for granted because people just didn't think they could go or should go. So I'm with you on the eye test and, and maybe also the perception issue. But at our um, Surfing the Great Lakes episode, when um, when our, our guest said that they were seeing algal blooms in Lake Michigan, I, I was kind of floored by that, my perception, because I'm, you know, I see Lake Michigan, I certainly saw it from the Lake Chicago side, but I also saw it from, you know, the, the upper, upper lakes side of Michigan. And to me, it was the most crystal clear, beautiful water you could ever want to jump into. And when she said that what they were seeing, and she attributed it to climate change, and that climate change, primarily warming waters, algal blooms, I I was kind of floored by that and saddened. I mean, I come from Lake Erie where algal blooms are a problem and we wait every year, right, in the spring to get, you know, NOAA's prediction on algal blooms in hopes that they're not going to be really horrible. And this year they actually were a little more mild, which is like a relief. It just changes everything if you can't get in the water. So, you know, I was thinking about it. And I, I think our next podcast, we're going to have to talk a little bit about algal blooms. And um, it's not 
particular to the Great Lakes. It's hitting waterways all around the world in the country. And and I think we need to talk about a little bit more. What is it and can it really be managed? And so it's an interesting subject. So I really appreciate your feedback on that. But I really, you know, kind of hope that we've learned our lessons and we really can clean up, clean, clean up our messes if we stay vigilant. And it's worth it because the Great Lakes is worth it. So thank you for that, Tyler. Uh, before we jump into shipwrecks in the Great Lakes, I also want to shine a spotlight on Queen Elizabeth II, who passed away this month after 70 plus years as Queen of England. In June of 1959, June 26th of 1959, U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower and Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II officially opened the St. Lawrence Seaway. The Queen, with Prince Philip and Ike, boarded the Royal Yacht Britannia, which then made a ceremonial trip through the St. Lambert and the St. Catherine Locks, officially connecting the Great Lakes and the Atlantic Ocean to larger ships. The Royal Yacht Britannia is the former royal yacht of the British monarchy, and she was in service from 1954 until 1997. Now, you can go online and see um, videos of it and, and the speeches and a lot of pomp and circumstance when the Britannia went through um, the locks and a beautiful yacht. But she is no longer in service. But I guess it's an opportunity to thank the Queen and President Eisenhower for dedicating this amazing engineering marvel that is the St. Lawrence Seaway. And, um, and the Queen and the Britannia are both retired from official duty, so may they rest in peace. In the 1800s, the Great Lakes were a hub of maritime activity. While the Great Lakes hosts busy shipping routes today, back then, there were people in cargo regularly shuffling between cities on the shores. But it wasn't always smooth sailing. More than 6,000 ships succumbed to the whims of the lake, taking 30,000 lives with them. While the average person on the street has likely heard of the Edmund Fitzgerald, thanks to the song by Gordon Lightfoot, there is so much more to explore and learn about the ships that traversed the Great Lakes and ended in a watery grave. Sean Lay is the Director of Development for the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum. And thank you, Sean, for being here. You know, there are so many directions to take when asking about shipwrecks because of the timeline of shipping in the Great Lakes. It's pretty long, starting with the Griffin, or Le Griffon, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, from the 1800s to the Edmund Fitzgerald that sank in 1975. So let's start with, a, I think, an easier question. Um, I'd like to know about the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum. When was it established and what is its mission? When you think of shipwrecks, it's certainly not just the wreckage that is lying on the bottom. And it's also not the historic part of it. I mean, there are some extremely historic shipwrecks that literally can take you back in time if you dive on the wrecks or if you see artifacts from the wrecks. But what I can tell everyone is that it's the connection to humanity that spans the ages when you're talking about a shipwreck. Probably the most interesting shipwreck or the oldest that I've seen is the Vasa which is in Stockholm, Sweden, that they carefully raised and preserved. And seeing that gives you a great idea of what life was like in Sweden 400 years ago. So now, of course, on the Great Lakes, they opened up to traffic, not international traffic, but ship traffic, before the building of the Sioux Locks, but 
the which were built in 1857, but the locks increased the amount of traffic due to the bulk cargoes or commodities that were available in Lake Superior. Many wrecks on the Great Lakes are in Lake Huron and Lake Michigan because this was passenger service crossing the lake from east to west where we didn't have highways. So each time that we find a new wreck, and they're not easy to find, but each time we find a new wreck, not only is the wreck historic, but, and I've seen this more than once, is that if it is in a time period, say starting from 1880 to modern times, people will want to know all about it because there are people who are descendants of those who were lost on the shipwrecks. And we get many calls about that. The museum itself began really in 1983 because we acquired a license from the U.S. Coast Guard to operate a small museum at the Whitefish Point Light Station, which is at the southeast end of Lake Superior on Whitefish Bay. And the light station itself began in 1849 as a light that was commissioned by President Polk. And they put a stone tower there, but due to the winds and its poor construction, it didn't last but more than 11 years. So the U.S. Lighthouse Service commissioned three lighthouses called Iron Pile Towers, which were built at Whitefish Point at Manitou Island in Lake Superior, which is off the Keweenaw Peninsula, and at Detour Village. The Detour Village was torn down in 1929, that light, and there is a light on Detour Reef itself that was built at that time. But both at Manitou Island and at our museum, Whitefish Point, Michigan, it's the same lighthouse that has been operating since 1861. And it's built of iron, not steel. Steel was a little new. So that started the light station at Whitefish Point. And there was an interest, there's always been an interest in Great Lakes shipwrecks that uh, led to our opening the museum in 1983. In 1985, we finally managed to get the first exhibits going and just went for a period of six weeks. And in six weeks, in this very rural area of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, we had over 12,000 people. So we, were, we knew we were on to something. Two years later, we built the current museum building, 1987. And that was dedicated by one of the sole survivors of a shipwreck, specifically the Daniel J. Morrell, and his name was Dennis Hale. Uh, and since then, because of the interest not only in shipwrecks, but in the natural beauty of Whitefish Point and Michigan cultural tourism, we've had a very good audience for a long time. Perhaps the most famous thing we did was to, through a long 
and difficult administrative process was raise the bell of the Edmund Fitzgerald on July 4th, 1995. And for all of us involved in that expedition, I can tell you that all of our lives changed when the bell came out of the water because that had interest from National Geographic and basically a world audience. And so these days we get many people that come to see the bell as well as our exhibits on other shipwrecks. And we've developed into one of certainly the Upper Peninsula, if not Michigan itself, one of its primary cultural tourism destinations. Thank you for that. And um, I, I bet bringing up the bell of the Edmund Fitzgerald was a profound moment for you guys. And congratulations on doing that. And perhaps it's um, the symbol, the symbolism maybe for the folks who lost family on that ship um, was even greater. And I think when I looked at the site for the museum, there's so many shipwrecks to talk about. And we are not going to spend lots of time about the Edmund Fitzgerald on here because, frankly, there's so much information out there about it. Um, and I, I, I think when you start to talk about so many old shipwrecks, old shipwrecks that are found or not found, it's fascinating. But let me ask you, how'd you get into the shipwreck business? I mean, it's an interesting subject, but what drew you to it? Well, it's really quite simple. Um, I was raised on the North Shore of Chicago, and so for various reasons, my family settled in the town of Winnetka, Illinois, which is on the North Shore. It's about 17 miles north of the city. Uh, so, you know, still they have, I think it's called Metra in the Chicago area where you ride the train down to the city and come and live in a suburb, you know. But when I was, when we moved there, I think I was six and there was a beach in Winnetka that was not too far away from where we lived on Tower Road, and that's why it was called Tower Road Beach. So I'd go down there, and there was all kinds of shipwreck wood on the beach. And before long, I learned that that was from one of the most famous wrecks on the Great Lakes called the Lady Elgin that sank in a collision eight miles off Winnetka in 1860. Of course, there's a very dramatic story related to that. But parts of the Lady Elgin washed up on the beach, and I used to play on them as a young man and, you know, would imagine what went on out there, what this was all about, and it just stuck with me. So um, then just maybe six months ago, I found in the Alpena, Michigan Public Library a photograph of children playing on the same wreckage that was taken on some Sunday after church in the year 1890. So, you know, that they would be playing on the same wreckage that I played on like 67 years later. And that was incredible. So, but staring out at the lake and I worked at the Winnetka Water and Electric Plant, which was down on the lake. So that's kind of where my interest came from. But I got certified for scuba diving very early on and have conducted many dives on the Great Lakes, primarily 
and like Michigan and Lake Superior. But I had to say that there comes a time where you have to retire from diving because your body cannot take the pressure changes and remove the nitrogen that's in your body. Even if you use what's called nitrox, it's, you still got nitrogen in there and it's just too risky when you get to a certain age. So, but this led of course to finding out about the Shiprock Museum, which was in the early 1980s. And I developed a talent of, with a background in the arts to write grants. And so, you know, the people who were working with the museum at that time, a grant writer, sure, come on, join us. So that's where it all began. And in this particular job, which I'm still doing and I still enjoy, I've been here 26 years. Oh, that's amazing. And um, I, you gotta wonder, I mean, running across a photograph of children about your same age from a hundred years before, more than a hundred years before, must have blown your mind. And you gotta wonder, were you reincarnated from one of those folks? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm kidding, of course, but it is it is just an incredible coincidence that you saw that. So let's get the griffin out of the way. Le griffin. Some have called the griffin the holy grail of shipwrecks in the Great Lakes. And we mentioned the griffin on our podcast about the Welland Canal, because in 1679, the griffin was portaged or portaged up and around Niagara Falls from Lake Ontario to Lake Erie. I think she was considered a bark, which means she had one mast and square sails. And she disappeared in what, Lake Huron, I think, and nobody knows what happened. Um, and I mean, this is the late 1600s, crazy, right? So is the griffin the holy grail and is there a wreckage out there that can ever be found? Well, the direct bottom line practical answer to both of your questions is no. 1679 was a long time ago. And, you know, since we've been doing our museum work in modern times, I've seen maybe at least 20 people who have found the griffin. But again, until you have proof, and for a wreck that old, if you found something inscribed in metal or a cannon, which they would have had, that has, you know, the Fleur de Lis of the French king about that time, that would be a good find. But they didn't have official numbers in those days. And they figure it wrecked somewhere in northern Lake Huron. But again, there's no proof. Even when we find shipwrecks with our modern equipment, which involve side-scad sonar and two remotely operated underwater vehicles, even when we find wreckage from not too long ago, say, you know, the 1920s, we don't know what ship it is until you find a name or you find the official number, which is always on the ship somewhere. And it's usually toward the, just abaft the bow on a crossbeam of some kind. So when you discover what it is, that's exciting, but it's just not as easy as you might think. Once you've identified the ship, then you can read historical facts about it and occasionally discover some things that you aren't expecting while you're there too. It's really interesting. But again, over time, what connects 
all of us who are interested in shipwrecks is the humanity. It's hard to describe, is that we relate to those who sailed the wreck and who were lost on the wreck. So um, I want to talk about the incredible research you guys are doing, but let me just continue this train of thought. What would you guys consider the holy grail of shipwrecks in the Great Lakes? That can change. It's a matter of opinion, but it's not the Fitzgerald because we know quite a lot about that. What I can say is they were actively looking for two ships that were commissioned by the French government in, of all places, the Canadian Car Company in what is now known as Thunder Bay, Ontario. It was Twin Cities up there before, Port William and Port Arthur, and they built 12 of these. And Canadian Car was not an automobile company, it was a rail car company. But they had the facilities to build ships. So 12 of these were built. And actually, I think it was maybe nine of them made it over to France successfully and actually swept some mines. Their purpose was to sweep mines out of German ports. I mean, out of French ports, sweep German mines out of French ports after World War One. But it was, you know, a long trip, very dangerous. And in November of 1918, there were three of them that left Port Arthur and headed east on Lake Superior, ran into a southwest storm. One of them, called the Sebastopol, managed to get around Keweenaw Point. And we have much information about that. The captain wrote a story about it, you know, and sent it to uh, the owners. But two of them, called the Inkerman and Sarisili, that are named after French in battles in, you know, old time France where the French won, those have not been found. And there is very little evidence, but we have been communicating with maritime people of the government of France. And if we find them, we're gonna get them involved right away because if there are French crew remains on them, they still belong to the French government. So I would say that those are prolific in the sense that very few other shipwrecks have an international connection like that. Now we see what are called salties go here through the Sulaks all the time because um, these days you get ships from anywhere, especially those that have on their stern a port of convenience. And uh, let me not explain that right now, but it's basically that they don't have to pay anything if they register at a port of convenience. I think I'm right about that in different nations. So to many of us, you might call the minesweepers a holy grail, but there are other ships that are lying on the bottom that have just as much rich history but I can tell you this is that because of basically a complete lack of any kind of evidence or where to look for the Griffin, we're not looking for the Griffin. And like I say, there are at least 20 um, expedition leaders who have said they've found it anyway. <laughs> but like anything else, you have to have some kind of proof. 
So, so I have two questions. One, th- these minesweepers, what year are we talking about that these ships might have gone down? 1918. We know they went down in 1918. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to get a timeline here because there's so many ships that went down in the 1800s. And then obviously the 1900s, um, that it's easy to forget so many of them. And I, I want to backtrack to your point about having to have some kind of um, uh, um, proof of what that ship is. And there's some kind of number on them or something. Now, a lot of these ships in the early 1800s were all uh, mostly wood <clears throat> wood sailing ships. I mean, did all of them have numbers on them or ways to identify them? I think the numbering system and an official number is just, you know, like a six digit number that is carved into a transverse beam below the spar deck. All right. That means it's kind of at the top of the ship where it's going to be easily found, but it's not going to be out in stress of weather. And if you find that, then you know what the ship is, because they did keep a pretty good record as far as that went. The change from sail, and I mean, there are many, many sailing vessels on the Great Lakes because sailing uh, was used for a very long time and is a perfectly dependable form of transportation of bulk goods. But when steam came along, it was a gradual change from sail to steam. And there are hybrid vessels that you'll find that use sail as well as steam because they had to trust their engines. But I think the first, well, there are two wrecks that we know of. One was called, um, which we found about three years ago, called the SR Kirby, was a hybrid ship, both wood and steel. But the first complete steel freighter was the Western Reserve that is a very historic ship We haven't found it yet, and it is somewhere off Whitefish Point. And there was one survivor from that wreck who described how the ship broke in two. And why did it break? You know, was the steel brittle or whatever? We don't know that. So the big, you know, I wouldn't say the Western Reserve is a holy grail. I mean, don't forget these ships were in their day very functional things. They were extremely important to transportation. But it wasn't exactly glorious to sail on a ship. And it wasn't glorious to be in a shipwreck. Um, it's just something that happened. And it always, what comes to mind, you know, again, not to talk about the Fitzgerald, but I met Captain Cooper of the Arthur M. Anderson that was following the Fitzgerald. And he had a comment that was pretty interesting because <clears throat> he was always asked, were the Fitzgerald crew martyrs to the Great Lakes. And right away, he maintained and said, they're not martyrs, not at all. The church has martyrs. These were just a bunch of guys, a bunch of guys doing a job, and they got hurt. And that's what they saw themselves, I think, on all Great Lakes ships. So, but um, they still didn't want to be lost in a shipwreck. Some did survive. And There is much research that can still be done, but we've attracted uh, quite a following. And again, if people had an ancestor that went down on a shipwreck, they'll call us up and say, well, can we see the logbook? No, you can't see the logbook because it went down with the ship. So we don't totally know who was on it. But in some of them, there were sole survivors. And of course, the survivor is glad to be alive 
And that's where you get a complete story of the wreck as best as he can tell it. So as to what a holy grail might mean, it would mean different things to different people, put it that way. But whatever you find on the bottom of the lake, which by the way, is all owned by the state of Michigan, Bottomlands Act 1980, whatever you find on the bottom of the lake is almost always really interesting. Oh, I can only imagine. So um, I, I was interested to learn that in some cases, companies would go after or to salvage ships that went down because they wanted to reuse the equipment on them. I mean, if people died on that ship, it sounds pretty cold, right? But in some cases, if they could get after that ship to just pull things off and use it again, I guess they would, right? Because it had some value. It was monetarily valuable. Um, I also am fascinated with the fact that ships from, let's say, the 1800s um, seem to have some good records on where they might have gone down, but yet were not found. So what sh- what's like what's a ship that you guys have found more recently that was actually a very old ship? Well, this past summer, we found a wreck called the C.F. Curtis that was in a tow with two other ships. And again, it's exciting to us to know where it is, okay? And also we have to be careful of sharing its location because remember, well, I should mention that in 1980, the state passed an act making it illegal to take anything off shipwrecks. And so that's very illegal because if you take something historic away, nobody else can see it again. So you don't want to do that. Um, But it depends on the condition of the wreck and if how complete the story is as to what makes it most historic. And, you know, two other wrecks I should mention that have had a great impact recently were the Carl D. Bradley that sank in November of 1958 in Lake Michigan with two survivors and the Daniel J. Morrell that sank in November of 1966 in Lake Huron with one survivor. And kind of how this hits us directly is that the two gentlemen who survived got involved with our organization, gave programs for us, and they both passed away now for natural causes. But it's, you know, their story is very interesting. But to get to know them as actual living people and, you know, become, they become your friends is something I never expected. So, but, you know, that's one of the best things you can do in this type of work, put it that way. So when you're trying to research ships um, and where shipwrecks might be, let's, I guess I want to talk a little bit about the research you guys are doing through the museum and the Great Lakes Shipwreck um, Historic Society or Society. Um, tell us about, like, what are, your, what are your big issues or big things you're trying to do um, lately or try to find? Is it about um, following up with the discovery of a shipwreck um, and getting at it, trying to get stuff, preserve stuff? Um, is it just doing research? Um, you know, why do you have a boat out there and what are you doing with it when you go out to look at shipwrecks? The objective currently 
because, you know, these days, as far as communication, of course, there's podcast, um, but, you know, it's making videos and making a video is a job for professionals in the area of producing. And so we, this past year, hired a former television producer who is now on our staff. And, you know, what we want to do is from the wreck, say we find a new shipwreck. First, we video the shipwreck. We can, you know, with our equipment, we cannot video human remains. That's another law that was passed and it's a very good one. But when we get footage for that, it comes up, it's raw footage, and it has to be, of course, edited and put into a story that your average public who is interested in shipwrecks will understand. So that's kind of our main objective because we want to disseminate the lure of shipwrecks and especially Michigan's maritime history. And it's very obvious we've done a good job with the museum at Whitefish Point, which I might add includes all the historic buildings of the Whitefish Point Light Station. And it's also an expensive task to keep a 166-year-old light station going. But people like to do what are basic fun things, you know, for their own humanity. They like to come to Whitefish Point. They like to see the historic buildings. They especially like to walk out on our boardwalk to the shore of Lake Superior and hear about the wrecks that are just off of Whitefish Point, but you can't see them because they're underwater. So where people cannot come to Whitefish Point, we are doing our best to reach them through videos and hopefully more artwork that has been created to a great degree up until about the 2000s and and some of our most well-known artists passed away but the reason you are use art in the museum is because no one was there with a camera to take a picture of the shipwreck so it comes out of the mind of the artist with a little bit of input from divers and the artist paints a dramatic painting so that's one reason we get funding from the michigan arts and culture council because they like our use of art visual art to interpret history and more use can be made about that too but again our mission is to tell people about it and it's not so much well you know we want to self-sustain the museum but we've gotten to a point where that's never going to be in question thank goodness but it just leads to appreciating history and above all, appreciating the efforts and the sacrifice of those who have gone before us when we're talking about the maritime trade. I appreciate your comment earlier on about the humanity piece of this. I mean, it sounds pretty um, exciting and adventurous to talk about these shipwrecks in the deep water, um, but they, you know, they impacted people's lives, right? They were, um, they were created and built these ships for a reason. And um, if a ship goes down, uh, it often can take lives with it. And that is, that's a serious thing. But it also does represent, you know, a place in time in history. So, you know, we're, we've been talking about 
shipwrecks that we presume are in deep waters, right, in Lake Superior. Um, and not everybody's going to be able to go dive on those. I mean, you know, 2,000 feet down, you're just not going to be diving on those, obviously. Um, but shipwrecks aren't necessarily in deep, deep water, right? There's like you you played on, a, you know, an old, old shipwreck um, in Illinois. Um, so, you know, where do people find shipwrecks that they can dive on? Oh, they're definitely all around the Great Lakes. Matter of fact, there's a really interesting wreck right sitting right off of Chicago. I think it's called the David Dallas. It's a four-masted schooner. And so that's in like 80 feet, okay? Lake Erie has shallow shipwrecks. Um, oh, one thing we should mention, this ties very much into discussing um, the environment in the Great Lakes. All the Great Lakes at this point, except Lake Superior, have been infested with zebra mussels and quagga mussels that came from the St. Lawrence Seaway in the ballast tanks of saltwater vessels, brought on the Great Lakes, and they flourished. There are no zebra mussels in Lake Superior because it's too cold for them. And if you go diving in Lake Superior, you can understand why it's too cold for them. So, but... Yeah, there are many shallow wrecks in Lake Superior, too. And I don't know, I think kind of the interest in diving has sort of declined, and it'll probably, like anything else, come back up again. But it's, at least for me, you know, it was a highlight of my life when I was doing it. And again, because, you know, it's like going down in a time machine, all this stuff is there. And if the wreck sank slowly, there are incredible artifacts there. So, but you can't get any closer than the actual object. I mean, one of the most probably, and it might be the most famous maritime museum exhibit ever, is the U-505 submarine in the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. And again, because I was from the Chicago area, when they brought that across Lakeshore Drive in 1954. It was like open to everybody. So more than once as a young boy, I was able to <coughs> climb inside the ballast tanks, go on the deck and see all kinds of things that, you know, is not allowed these days because it's not safe. But when you're 10 years old, you know, you don't think anything is unsafe. <laughs> so, so, but that's, you know, that's a really good example of a restoration and the more you learn about it, you know, the more exciting it is. Same thing with these wrecks that we've got. So I think our main mission is really to take the most interesting wrecks and disseminate their stories and make a story using video or whatever electronic means are going to allow us to do it. And we did do a project that was supported by the Michigan Department of Transportation in 2008 that included for five selected wrecks in Whitefish Bay, five selected wrecks, and we did site drawings and paintings and exhibits that interpreted each of them. And that was very popular. I bet it was. And, you know, if you get into live streaming as well on some of this stuff and, and um, the, the artifacts you have or being able to um, maybe even have divers take uh, cameras with them and walk through the, you know, dive through and show pictures of the wreck, that would be fascinating. I know Tyler would love it because he, he likes to learn about boats um, um, from those kind of programs. And I think they're great for everybody because not everybody can get there.
You know, um, you talked about uh, zebra mussels not existing in Lake Superior because it's too cold, you know, but also that, you know, the cold, fresh water of the Great Lakes in general has a lot to do with keeping a lot of shipwrecks intact, right? So I'm guessing that waves are the, are the, the biggest enemy of a shipwreck? The Because um, we've looked at this and the primary cause is stress of weather, okay? And it, it isn't necessarily just waves. There's all kinds of weather. But fog, at least around Whitefish Point, because it's a very narrow distance between upbound and downbound ships, fog is, you know, leads to collision. So around where we are, that was a very common loss. But yeah, you have to put stress of weather as the first. And, you know, here's the Fitzgerald was supposedly equipped with all kinds of modern equipment, and it was lost anyway. So that was a real eye-opener to the maritime community. And I think these days you just can't look at any ship and say it's unsinkable because guess what happens? <laughs> yeah, when you read about a lot of the shipwrecks and why it, you know, from the 1800s even to, of course, Edmund Fitzgerald, the reason these ships down was because they talk about the waves constantly um, and, and the fact that they like the ships are splitting in two, <laughs> rudders are coming off, and it's all because of this incredible, horrible weather, tough weather. And um, we've said this before, the Great Lakes are like an ocean, and you cannot treat it, treat it as anything like a little lake. My brother, when we interviewed him as a retired freighter captain, had some pretty strong stories to talk about waves. And you have to you have to know the lake, and each lake is different and has to be respected differently. So, um, yeah, I can't... I, um, just reading through a lot of these shipwrecks, I mean, obviously, weather sounds like the obvious one. Um, some catch on fire, but um, don't underestimate the value of the Great Lakes um, um, environmentally. I, I want to give a shout out, though, um, to the Wisconsin Shipwreck Coast National Marine Sanctuary, uh, which opened last year. Um, it's uh, like co-managed, I think, by the state of Wisconsin um, and NOAA. And, and they're protecting 36 historically significant shipwrecks um, and then maritime heritage resources like you are. So um, uh, are you collaborating with them? Are there, um, it seems to me that there are some pretty interesting shipwrecks there um, and represent kind of a cross-section of vessel types um, and kind of give you a sense of, you know, what ships were carrying from the 1800s through the 20th century. So have you do uh, dove on any of those ships or been uh, visited that uh, sanctuary? No, not myself. Um, but I can tell you that they're, you know, what they're doing is wonderful. It's great. And still you have a local factor on the Great Lakes. I mean, we are pretty good at interpreting um, wrecks around Whitefish Bay and Lake Superior, but the government preservation unit of NOAA in Alpena, Michigan, uh, we know them a little bit better than Wisconsin. And maybe that's just because they're in our same state. Supposedly, Whitefish Bay is an underwater preserve, but there's no central building for it. And administratively, you know, we didn't get to a point yet if we get there to call the Shipwreck Museum a center because we don't have scientific laboratory equipment like they will at these NOAA facilities. So, but, you know, any effort to preserve these wrecks preserves part of our history. Uh, one more thing to mention is that comparing the Great Lakes to the oceans, 
There was an author who's already done that named Herman Melville, who said in the middle of Moby Dick that these seas, these inland seas, even though they're inland, have drowned full many a midnight ship with all its shrieking crew. If you think about, you know, um, the, you know, I think uh, I've said this before, you know, it's not easy to be a mariner, a merchant mariner. It also can be incredibly rewarding and exciting and adventuresome. Um, when you think about the mariners who are out on ships, whether it was in the Great Lakes or the ocean, um, where, um, you know, especially in early days when they didn't have all of the equipment you have on board now. Um, and you really just had to know and understand uh, the area in which you sailed in order to get around it. We've talked about this um, in previous episodes, some of the dangerous areas um, around the Great Lakes and where there's more shipwrecks. So let me ask you, what Great Lake has the most shipwrecks in it? Well, it's not Lake Superior. Lake Superior, we estimate, have a, has about 600 wrecks. Lake Superior was not so much used for human transportation, you know, um, but bulk cargo, yes, Lake Superior is bringing these commodities still through the Sioux Locks, and they're building another Sioux Lock because uh, the demand is always there. But I'm going to say that it's probably halfway, it's, it's probably very close to being even in Lake Michigan and Lake Huron um, as far as how many wrecks are there. Those are going to be passenger ships because of the migration westward always happened. And for many, many years, it was way faster to take a boat to get from point A to point B instead of, you know, going in a covered wagon or even um, automobiles or steam trains. So, um, you know... What should also be mentioned is the greatest loss of life on the Great Lakes happened right in the Chicago River in July of 1915 when a ship called the Eastland, which was an excursion boat taking passengers who worked for the Western Electric Company, supposed to take them across the lake to Michigan. It was an unstable vessel. People moved to one side and it just capsized right in the Chicago River with a loss of 835 lives. And recently, the Chicago Tribune, somehow in its sub-sub basement, and this is, I'm going to say, well, recently is like 10 years ago, found all kinds of records and photographs of the Eastland, including some um, old films that were taken you know, not as the wreck was happening, but of the recovery effort. So it's something, again, you can't put your finger on it, but it just affects humanity. And all of those who are interested in shipwrecks, you know, we want to learn more about it. And as you want to learn more about it, it's almost like you're learning about your own humanity. Is there, um, we talked a little bit about the, um, the Holy Grail of ships, but in your heart of hearts, what do you think is the most interesting, the most fascinating, the most um, incredible discovery that you think um, has been found as a ship that was lost in the Great Lakes? 
Well, in terms of popularity, there's no question. And because of Gordon Lightfoot's song, it's the Fitzgerald. But, you know, our experience has been uh, the family members because we needed them to raise the bell. And once the bell gets raised, we have a ceremony each November for it. And we're out of space. You know, people just want to hear the bell and remember the sailors. So that's pretty much a very strong symbol of what goes on in a shipwreck. But excuse me, myself, there are wrecks in Lake Michigan that haven't been found yet. And there's wrecks, of course, many of them in Lake Superior that haven't been found yet. And, you know, I would love it if we could find the minesweepers because there you've got an international connection and it, it, it leads to great possibilities that all of a sudden, you know, we have people in France who have relatives who want to, who passed away on the minesweepers, and here we're going to be dealing with the French government, you know, which is a good thing. So, but I have some favorite wrecks that I wish could be found in Lake Michigan, just because I know their stories. I mean, one of the creepiest, for example, is called the Andasti, and this was a ship that never looked very pretty. It was functional, it looked like what's called a sand sucker with, you know, big, a big tumble home on both sides. And because I've been into Great Lakes sailing, you know, on small sailboats and have been awake all night, very often on Lake Michigan crossing the lake. And I always wondered if that ship was gonna come out of the gloom at me in the middle of the night, and then I'd know something was up. <laughs> but uh, the stories are fascinating. Another wreck, if people are interested, is, is called the Kamloops, K-A-M-L-O-O-P-S, which is named after a city in British Columbia. That is wrecked at Isle Royal. It is diveable for advanced divers. You have to get permission from the National Park Service that owns Isle Royal to go diving on it. But Occasionally, we get Boy Scouts that come to Whitefish Point, want to stay overnight. And I was a Boy Scout. And my job, as I was asked by the Scout Masters, is tell them a shipwreck ghost story. And I thought my job is to tell them a good, nice, clean ghost story that will keep them up all night. And one time I did that. Next morning, and all the Boy Scouts, oh, I couldn't sleep at all after that. <laughs> well, then it was absolutely a good ghost story, a good shipwreck story. It worked. Hey, you know, I, I, I just think we probably should mention that, you know, I think diving on a shipwreck could be pretty exciting. And like you said, it takes you to, you know, a, a bygone era when you're on it. And, hey, maybe you'll find some treasure or something that no one found. But it, it, wreck diving is pretty specific, right? So if the, if someone thought that they wanted to be on, on divers, are a couple of rules that divers should live by before they attempt it? Heavens, yes. And you have to know what you're doing and above all, you know, get proper training, proper certification, and you start with shallow dives because what happens when you go on deep dives and, you know, you can use mixed gases that will help, but on compressed air, like we used to do, you know, we're talking wrecks that are really below the safe diving limit. And you'll hear all limits there, like 120 feet 
all right? And you hear, well, you can safely dive up to 150 feet. Well, in our case, we were a little bolder than that and have been down in wrecks in the 250, 260 foot range. And you have to know exactly what you're doing. Make sure you, you just, you know, you get down on the wreck and you just stop and freeze, check everything and don't leave the ascent line. And if everything checks out, then you make your dive and you measure your what's called bottom time very carefully. Because if you don't start surfacing at when your bottom time is up, you're going to run out of air on the way to the circus surface, which is really bad. But, you know, there's a lot of science to it and you have to follow rules. One of which is dive with a buddy all the time. That one again is control your ascent. So I would say it's scientific, but another thing that we've talked about lately is that we all love mother nature, but mother nature always wins. Mother nature is in charge and you cannot break rules of diving in one of mother nature's bodies of water without knowing what you're doing. Absolutely. And I think that's a good caution. Hey, could you um, tell everybody a little bit, uh, how can they find out about the museum? And um, will you have a ceremony in November for the Edmund Fitzgerald that people could uh, join? Yes, um, we will have a ceremony. It's going to be live streamed on our website. So it's not open to the public at this time because we just got too many people and COVID kind of threw a wrench into it. So this year, it's still going to be just for family members, but it's going to be live streamed. Our website is www.shipwreckmuseum. That's one long word, www.shipwreckmuseum.com. And that's probably the fastest way to get information about what we do. It's a very interesting website. It is. It's got. It's chock full of great information, and uh, so I recommend people do it. But um, you know, I have, I have witnessed a few, more than a few moments of silence for ships that went down and the lives that were lost. Um, for those of you who have an interest in, uh, to get a sense of what it's really like for people to, um, I mean, the Edmund Fitzgerald isn't really that long ago, right? So a lot of family um, still remembers and feels what it was like. So I recommend you join that live stream. It will, I think it will have a profound um, impact on you. So I, I highly recommend you do that and, and seeing the family together will be amazing. Um, Sean, uh, Lay, I can't thank you enough for joining us to talk about shipwrecks in the Great Lakes. You know your stuff. It's so interesting. It's a great excuse to get up to Whitefish Bay, folks, and see the museum. And um, we'll we'll keep talking about all the great things in the Great Lakes. Thank you very much, Helen, for inviting me and our museum to participate. And thank you as well, Tyler. So this wraps up another episode of North Coast Chronicles, Tales from the Great Lakes. Send me your comments, ideas for future podcasts, or to be a sponsor to northcoastchronicles at gmail.com. The views of this podcast are mine and do not necessarily reflect the views of the U.S. Department of Transportation. Join us next time on North Coast Chronicles as we talk about green curls in the water, harmful algal blooms in the Great Lakes, and what can we do about them. Until then, be good to one another.